Uh, this sounds like terrible name-dropping, but I, I met a member of the royal family once. I guess some of you have as well. I, um, I knew that she was going to be at the event that I was going to, but I wasn't particularly bothered whether I met her or not. But I happened to be introduced to her, and uh, we talked for some time. I don't know whether she'd asked to be introduced to me or not. I, mean, I suppose it was that. Um, anyway, I've got to say, she was, she was absolutely delightful. She seemed to be in no rush to move on, and she appeared genuinely interested in me and my family. Meeting the real person was quite different from my perception of her. And it seems to me the same is true of Jesus. We can think we know him, even presume that we wouldn't particularly want to meet him. But when we read the Bible and meet the real Jesus, it turns out he's not anything like the Jesus we create in our minds. He's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's a remarkably strong, robust character. He speaks his mind and won't take any nonsense from the establishment. And yet he is extraordinarily kind and warm and embracing. I can still remember when I first read the Bible seriously as an adult, being surprised and amazed by Jesus with every page I turned. I was reading Matthew's Gospel. I knew all the stories from Sunday school, but the real Jesus wasn't anything like the Jesus that I had created in my imagination. Now that is certainly the case as we turn to chapter 9 and verses 9 to 13. Jesus is so not what you expect here. These are very shocking verses. The problem is many of us have read them before so we often don't even bat an eyelid. But this is headline-grabbing stuff. Jesus called a tax collector to follow him. Verse 9 again, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The reaction of the Pharisees says it all. They were dumbfounded that Jesus could eat with tax collectors and sinners. These verses are profoundly unsettling. But my guess is we don't really feel it, either because we're so familiar with the story or because we haven't thought ourselves into the cultural situation of the day. See, while tax collectors have a universally bad press, my guess is that no matter how much we may hate the tax man, it would be nothing compared to how Jesus' contemporaries felt about tax collectors in first century Palestine. Matthew was not a smiling, decent bureaucrat who dropped his voice slightly when you met him at a drinks party and said sheepishly, I'm with the inland revenue, you know. That's not it at all. Jewish tax collectors were corrupt and hated. They were not much more than official crooks. They not only collected the tax, they fleeced you as well. Oh, it reminds me of Mark Twain's little quip. Have you heard this? The difference between a taxidermist and a tax collector is that the taxidermist takes only your skin. Well, the tax collector, Matthew, like all tax collectors, would have fleeced you and then taken more. You wouldn't trust him as far as you could throw him. And if you were Jewish, you would not touch him with a barge pole. For to touch Matthew would leave you ceremonially unclean. See, Matthew was a traitor. He'd jumped into bed with the enemy, if I can put it that way. Matthew was a Jew working for the Romans. And as such, he was universally reviled. Let me explain. 
When Caesar Augustus had brought Judea under direct Roman rule, he'd imposed a, a poll tax on his Jewish subjects. The tax, as it was called, was hated by the Jews. Not only because they had to part with their hard-earned cash, but it was hated for good theological reasons. Consider how the Jews feel about Palestine. To them it is their promised land. The land promised to them and given to them by the Lord. That's what so much of the unrest in the Middle East is about today. The Jews believe it is literally their God-given right to own that strip of land. So quite simply, no one else has the right to occupy their land. It was a gift to them from Almighty God. But in the first century, that is exactly what the Romans had done. They occupied the land. And then to rub salt into the wound, they imposed a tax on the Jews for living in their own land, the land that the Lord had given them. So do you see why this tax caused such outrage? It was not just an insult, it was a blasphemy. And so Jewish tax collectors, a Jew collecting money from other Jews on behalf of the Romans to live in the land that God had given them to live in, well, they were the scum of the earth. Complete traitors, yellow bellies, working for the enemy and against God, no less. Jewish tax collectors then were complete religious no-hopers, permanently unclean, unfit to come before the living God. So for Jesus to even talk to a man like this and then to call him and then to go and have dinner with him and others like him, well, it left the Pharisees lost for words, fuming with anger. That's verse 10, when Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. See, a sign of, of real friendship when Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. The Pharisees saw this. They asked, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? We've really only got to grips with these verses when they shock us, when they unsettle us, when we are deeply disturbed by them. Jesus called a tax collector and ate with sinners. To try and get the sense of outrage, let me try verse 9 in a more contemporary idiom. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a Bearings bank trader by the name of Nick Leeson sitting at his computer, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Or how about this, and this may ring some bells, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a disgraced politician called Jonathan Aitken sitting in a courtroom, and Jesus said to him, follow me. At many levels, those examples seem to be parallels. A financial cheat, a liar, they seem to be parallels, and yet I think these examples are not really good enough. So, so try this one. As Jesus went on from there, he saw pop stars, Britney Spears and Amy Winehouse snorting cocaine, and Jesus said to them, follow me. Do you get the feeling of surprise of verse 9? Maybe this will do it. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a terrorist by the name of Bin Laden sitting in his cave, a man who'd been responsible for the murder and misery of thousands of lives, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Are we feeling outraged yet? Or this one? As Jesus went on from there, he saw Ian Huntley, the sower murderer, sitting in his prison cell. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now please, I'm not out to deliberately shock or to be provocative, but rather to help us grasp the magnitude of verses 9 to 11. 
If you feel a sense of outrage, then you are feeling exactly what the Pharisees felt when they saw Jesus sitting with Matthew and other tax collectors and sinners. The calling of Matthew is profoundly uncomfortable. But that is what the real Jesus did. Oh, the Jesus of our imagination would never do it, but that's what the real Jesus did. And you can be sure all the other people invited to the party at Matthew's house in verse 10 were people that we really wouldn't want to be associated with either. Jesus called tax collectors, prostitutes, terrorists, rogue traders, liars, cheats, and had there been any about in those days, he'd have called drug dealers too. And my guess is there are people that we feel, they are people that we feel Jesus really shouldn't be friends with. No, Jesus, you can't be friends with those people. But the real Jesus was. The real Jesus calls people to himself who are beyond the pale. The real Jesus calls the scum of the earth to be his followers. It's a surprise, isn't it? When we see the real Jesus in action, it dispels the myth that Christianity is a middle-class religion for nice, respectable types like, well, like us. Well, of course it is for us, but, but not only for us. But listen, while the calling of Matthew is terribly shocking for most of us here, this will be wonderfully liberating for others. For there will be people here who think they've been too bad for Jesus. Oh, you know who you are. You've got a history. There's stuff in your past or even in your present that you are mightily ashamed of. Maybe you're a student. You've uh, come to Sheffield, started at, at uni, relieved that you've got a fresh start with people that don't know you. Relieved that you can leave the past behind. No, these people don't know how you're stuffed up. I've got a fresh start. Wonderful. Problem is, when it comes to God, he still knows your past. You can't leave him behind. Well, yes, he does. But this says he wants to be your friend anyway. Isn't that wonderful? Look at Matthew and at others Jesus made friends with. And look at Jesus' words at the end of verse 13. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. If you think you're a bad person, then you are perfectly qualified to come to Jesus because he's come for you. That's what this baptism's all about. It's what the water of baptism is all about. He's come for bad people to clean you. See, what have you done that's so bad? Is it financial? Have you stolen? Cheated someone out of money? Been caught up in some dodgy deals? Been involved in a tax scam or a company fraud? Well, look, Jesus was friends with Matthew, a tax collector. Or is it sexual? You had a whole string of sexual encounters, got yourself pregnant, got, got someone else pregnant, had an abortion. Well, look, Jesus was the friend of prostitutes, no less. Or, or is it relational? Have you treated people badly? Have you left a trail of broken relationships behind you at work, walked all over others to feather your own nest, caused others' lives to fall apart? Look, Jesus was the friend of sinners. This is the wonderful good news about Jesus. The qualification for coming to Jesus is not are you good enough, but are you bad enough? 
For he said, verse 13, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Here's genuine Christianity. It's not comfortable, but it is wonderful. Here's the real Jesus. He's not predictable, but he is knowable. Meet the real Jesus and you'll not meet someone telling you to be prim and proper and good and religious before you can come to him, but someone who calls sinners. And someone who forgives sinners. You see, Jesus, the gospel, is so liberating. Anything else you throw your life into is thoroughly unforgiving. Have you noticed that in the world? Throw your life into your work and when you stuff up, you'll be dismissed. Strive in your life for approval from others and when you blow it, you'll lose their respect. Look for success in sport and if you don't make the grade, you'll be an also-ran. Life is thoroughly unforgiving. But throw your lot in with Jesus and he forgives and accepts and befriends us even when we've blown it completely. That's what's happening here. He came for sinners. Now if that's a wonderful surprise for some, and it will be, the real surprise of this passage is what follows, and and it's a terrible surprise for good people. See, as we look at these verses, who do you think is offending God the most? The tax collectors and sinners or the Pharisees? Who do you think? The irony of these verses is that while the Pharisees don't want to have anything to do with these dirty sinners who've turned away from God, the Pharisees are every bit as guilty of turning away from God themselves. In these few verses, we have complete religious no-hopers on the one hand and Bible-believing religious types on the other. And the shock is, is that both of them have turned from God. Friends, hear this this evening. There are two ways to turn from God. One by being incredibly bad and breaking all the the rules and the other by being incredibly good and keeping all the laws in order to make yourself right with God. There are two ways to turn from God. They look so different to us. To God they are both the same. And that's why the Pharisees said, verse 11, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus replied, verse 12, it's not the healthy you need a doctor but the sick. See, Jesus said, I'm a doctor. I've come to heal the spiritually sick. And no one goes to the doctor unless they're well. Now I know that as I say that, all the doctors in the congregation, and I know there are many, are thinking, if only that was true, I'd have a considerably lighter caseload. I was talking to a a member of the congregation who is a doctor ten days ago about the hypochondriacs who are down the surgery every couple of weeks. But look, the point still stands. No one goes to the doctor if they think they're well. Hypochondriacs may not be ill, but they're coming to you because they think they are. If I'm fit and well, the last place I want to go is to the doctor's surgery to sit in a stuffy waiting room with a bunch of sick people because then I'm sure to get ill. And just as no one goes to the doctor if they're physically well, Jesus says, no one's going to come to me if they're spiritually well. And you see, that's the Pharisees. They think they've got a good bill of health, spiritually speaking. Because they're good and religious and they love their Bible and they say their prayers and they're sincere and committed to following God. They think they're well and have no need of Jesus. And that's why Jesus said to them in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
Now look, if the Pharisees were livid with Jesus for being friends with sinners, these words would have made them blow a gasket. Everything about this verse would have riled the Pharisees. First Jesus said, verse 13, go and learn. It's a remarkable thing to say to the Pharisees. It was a sort of standard rabbinic formula. The Pharisees would have said it to hundreds of other people. Usually it was used in a rather sarcastic way to rebuke someone. Go and learn. Go and study the text. Look closer at your Bible. They'd have said it to many people in the past because they were the Bible experts and now Jesus is saying it to them. What a thing to say to the Pharisees. They loved their Bible. You'd have to go some to find someone who loved their Bible more. But if that wasn't bad enough, the section of the Bible Jesus sent them to was the book of Hosea. See, verse 13 is a quote from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And boy, is Hosea a raunchy little book in the Bible. Yes, the Bible has raunchy little books. In Hosea, the Lord told the religious leaders of the day that while they were continuing with their temple religion, they had lost the very heart of their faith. They had turned away from the Lord himself. Oh, it didn't look like it, they were religious, but they turned from the Lord. Which is why Hosea chapter 6 begins, Come, let us return to the Lord. And Hosea is such a shocking book. I mean, it is really offensive. Because the Lord accuses his people of being, do you know it? Spiritual prostitutes. They've given themselves to other gods. Oh, it didn't look like it. They had all the outward signs of faith in God. Their religious activity was full on. They were good people. They said their prayers. They made sacrifices at the temple. But, said the Lord, verse 13, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. See, they did all the religious activities they should do. They made all the sacrifices required of them. They kept the law, but they had no mercy towards other people. And this is the point. Jesus is not saying, be more merciful. That's not it at all. This is the point. They had no mercy towards others because they had no personal experience of the mercy of the Lord themselves. Now, isn't that exactly what we see with the Pharisees? A more religious bunch you are unlikely to find. They said their prayers, they read their Bibles, they gave money to the poor, they kept the fasts. But as you look at them here, they had no mercy. No mercy towards tax collectors and sinners. They were just dirty, rotten sinners that we want nothing to do with. And they had no mercy towards others because they knew nothing of the mercy of God in their own lives. For you see, when you know the mercy of God in your own life, you show mercy to others. You have to. You want to. Because God has shown you so much mercy. But when you believe in some measure that you are a good person, when you believe in some measure that you deserve God's forgiveness, well then, of course, you don't cast yourself on the mercy of God and so you show no mercy to others. The real irony of these verses is that while the Pharisees are looking down their noses at Jesus spending time with prostitutes, Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, you Pharisees are the spiritual prostitutes. Shocking, isn't it? That's what the real Jesus says. Oh, they're religious, they're moral, they were good people, but the shocking thing about this passage is that the Pharisees were just as guilty, if not more, of turning away from God. They just did it in a respectable, middle-class, religious kind of way. For there are two ways to reject God. You can be irreligious or religious. You can live a very bad life or you can live a very good life. 
thinking that your very good life, your sacrifice, if you like, will get you to God. One of the uh, saddest funerals I ever took was of a man in his 50s. His family had been saying to him for some time that he should go to the doctor. But he wouldn't have any of it. He prided himself on being a fit man. He'd never taken a day off sick in his life. He insisted he was all right. One night he went to bed early and never woke up the next morning. And the most tragic thing of all was that the the post-mortem revealed that his condition was curable. Had he gone to the doctor, he'd have been alive today. Jesus said, verse 12, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. If we think we're spiritually well, Jesus can't help us. That's the Pharisees. In the summer of 1990, I spent seven weeks in the heart of New York City in Manhattan. I was working in a a Christian soup kitchen amongst the homeless. Most of the homeless that I worked with uh, were drug addicts. It was a remarkable experience, and I met some amazing people. Let me tell you about one of them. His name was Big James. Well, that's what he was called anyway. He was big, getting on for seven feet. I mean, everybody's big compared to me. He's big compared to everyone. He was big and he was black. And he was a phenomenal keyboard player. Big James had been a session musician. Played on some of the famous albums in the 80s. But he got into drugs. Well, everyone was. Couldn't hold down his job eventually. It got so bad. But he kept to keep feeding his habit. Eventually, he began to sell things because he had no money. Sold everything. Eventually, sold his New York apartment so he could keep buying drugs. When everything he had was gone, he, reduced, uh, he was reduced to stealing to feed his habit. Eventually, he found himself at this place called St. Paul's House, the soup kitchen, where there he heard about Jesus. Oh, this was some years before I turned up and he said this to me when I turned up. He said, no one had to tell me I was a sinner. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I needed help. I knew I needed God's forgiveness. And what I found or heard from Big James, I found again and again and again working with these people. These people, drug addicts, dropouts, prostitutes, they didn't have to be told they were sinners. They knew they needed Jesus. They just needed to know that he wanted them. And that is why, you see, it's always the Matthew types, the sinners who turn to Jesus first. Because they know they need him. The problem with good people, middle class people, respectable people, religious people, people like us, is that we don't think we need Jesus. We think we can get right with God ourselves. That's the Pharisees. And the most shocking thing of all is that Jesus is not speaking to people who aren't interested in God here. He's not, he's not speaking to the, you know, to the good people who aren't, aren't at forward on Sunday. No, no. The Pharisees were deeply concerned about knowing God. They could not be more committed to knowing God. And you see, of all the people in the Gospels, it is the Pharisees who we are most likely to be like. Like the Pharisees, we do religious activities that are good to do. Reading the Bible, saying our prayers, giving our alms, going to church. We call ourselves evangelical Christians. They would have been the really serious people about the Bible in those days. We can attend good Bible-believing churches. We could have been coming to Christ Church forward for years. We can look back to a time when we prayed the sinner's prayer. We can tell of the time when we asked Jesus into our lives, when we made a commitment 
We can be just like that and still be like the Pharisees. And what is the test? Jesus says this, verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. See, there's the test. The Pharisees were outraged that Jesus spent time with tax collectors and sinners. They looked down their noses at others. I remember years ago, a baptism preparation evening. I was talking to a group of churchgoers about having their babies baptised. I explained the gospel to them. I explained that this stuff, that we're all sinners, that we need forgiveness, that the water of baptism talks about being cleansed and you don't need to be cleansed unless you're dirty and that Jesus died for us. And when I finished, one of the fathers said this to me. Now let me get this straight. He said, no matter how bad a person has been, they can be forgiven and go to heaven. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, I said. I was really excited. He'd obviously understood it. It was, it was terrific. And I said to him, isn't it terrific news? And he said, no. No, I cannot accept that, he said. What about the murderer and the terrorist? Surely you're not telling me that they can be forgiven too. There's the Pharisee. And Jesus says, verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. See, do you get angry at the thought that Bin Laden or, or Ian Huntley or whoever you think is the vilest person on earth could come to Jesus? Because that's what we've got before us in Matthew 9. This tax collector to the Jews was the vilest person. Do you get angry when you think of that? Then you haven't understood the mercy of God in your own life you probably haven't experienced the mercy of God in your own life. Even if you can say you became a Christian and you prayed a prayer. When others make mistakes, do you get annoyed with them? I mean, you know, really angry when they've made a mistake. You know, that you, you really want... You, or do you remember that you've made mistakes and that you've really blown it big time before God? And that God showed you mercy. Because if you never remember that, then you probably haven't received his mercy. And so whatever you call yourself, you're probably not trusting in Jesus. Even if you say you are, in reality you're probably not. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Not the sacrifice of religion, even our evangelical religion. Now if that's you, Dr. Dr. Jesus' diagnosis is that you you are trusting in other things to get you right with God, even if it looks as if you're trusting in Jesus. You're trusting in your own sacrifice to get you right with God. And that is to reject God. Because he has given us the sacrifice of God's son, of his own son. And that is the only sacrifice that gets us right with God. Well, let's spend a moment uh, being quiet as we think of our own response. There'll be some here who, some here who are saying, I didn't realise that even though I'm that bad that I can come to Jesus. Well, think of Matthew.
the tax collector. You can be forgiven. There are others of us who will be saying, uh, I've realised that I've been trusting in being good. Even our kind of good. Fullwood's kind of good. That I'm not merciful towards others. Which shows that I'm not aware of God's mercy in my life. 